0: Welcome to SICKcast, brought to you by Sikh Research Institute, illuminating every path.
1: Introducing Pagame Goya, Expression of Love, new translations of a selection of Ghazals from Lal Goya. Today's podcast begins with the recitation of Lal's Ghazal in Persian, followed by a new English transcreation the result of a unique collaboration between Dr. Fatima Fayaz and Dr. Nadra Khan of Lahore University of Management Sciences, Daman Breed Singh, writer and graduate student, and Inni Kaur of Sikri, followed by a discussion between Daman and Inni about the beauty of the ghazal and the transcreation process.
2: کسی به حال غریبان بی نرسد از آنکه که هیچ به دانکوی دل نرسد هزار خلده برین را بنیم جو نخرند رسیدیم ایم به جایی که پادشاه نرسد طبیب عشق چنین گفته است می گویند به حال درد غریبان به جز خدا نرسد برای روشنی چشم دل اگر خواهی به خاک درگه او هیچ توتیا نرسد به یاد دوست توان ام را به سر بردند که در برابر آن هیچ کیمیا نرسد تمام دولت گیتی فدای خاک درش که تا فداش نگردد کسی به جا نرسد فدای خاک درش میشود از آن گویا
0: no one looks after the state of the helpless wanderers, as no one ever reaches the beloved's lane. A thousand heavens are not worth half a grain of barley, as where we are is far beyond the reach of monarchs. The one who is called the Physician of Love is known to have said that no one but God can heal the pain of these wanderers. If you want to light up the heart's eye, the finest coal is no match to the dust of his threshold. It's worth spending one's life remembering the Beloved, as there is no alchemy equivalent to that. All the world's wealth can be given up for the dust of his door, as unless one surrenders to him, no one reaches anywhere. Goya surrenders to the dust of his door, as the destination cannot be reached unless one turns into dust.
1: Guru Fateji, this is any core in conversation with Damanpreet Singh on Ghazal number 30 from the Pai Nandlal collection, Divane Goya. Welcome, Daman. How have you been? There have been uh, multiple changes in your life or a few changes. You want to just fill us in on that? That would be great. I'm excited.
3: Yes, I'm excited to pick this up again. I am coming to you all from a different location. I've moved homes, which was very stressful during the hottest weekend of the summer so far. (laughs) Um, And I am no longer doing coursework with my in my PhD so I am freer and hopefully um we'll be spending more time on these ghazals over the summer which is very exciting
1: oh lovely I can't wait so um in this particular ghazal the repeated word is narisad I know we have used variants of this word so I'm sure I've butchered the word as well but uh Talk to me, tell me your thoughts about this particular word, Daman, because this repeated word really sets the stage for the entire ghazal. So it's important that we understand this word and then, you know, look, uh, you know, listen for it in each couplet. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, so this ghazal's repeated word, as you said, is narisad, which is the past tense negative of the verb "rasidan," which means to arrive in Persian, "mirasad" um, is the present is the present tense version of it. Narisad is the negative. Um, so we've kind of translated in in a variety of different ways. As listeners will gather, we've translated it as um, to not reach a destination in several couplets, to not arrive. Um, to never reach, which is slightly different, to not match up to um, something. So because of the nature, as we've seen in previous puzzles, because of the nature of the Persian, um, there is no one perfect English translation. And we um, have tried in each couplet to retain the meaning over the flow um, and hopefully strike some sort of balance between the two. Um, And then the other thing I would note with the repeat in the Persian narisad comes as is typical of the ghazal form at the end of the second line of each couplet. But because of, you know, grammatical differences between English and Persian in in the translation, you know, the reader will not see the verb at the end of the line, Um, but it is located at different points depending on the specific um, line in question.
2: Mm,
1: great point, great point that you brought up. You know, it's these little snippets that along the way that we, uh, you know, that what we get to learn from you, Daman. So um, the first couplet is no one looks after the state of the helpless wanderers as no one ever reaches the beloved slain. You know, I know we went quite a bit back and forth before we settled on the words, helpless wanderers. And I think our uh, listeners would love to know how we settled on that word because it's not ex- an exact translation. So walk us through that first line before we get to the second line because I feel that if we don't get the depth of those two words, uh, understanding... Um, for our own understanding, we may miss out on what Goya is saying or wants to share or our understanding of, of you know, what he is saying. So, you know, the first line, that helpless wanderers.
3: Yeah. So the the original in the Persian is Garibane Be which we've translated as helpless wanderers. So the word is Garib, which we also have in Punjabi. Um, and in other South Asian languages, suggests both the state of wandering, but really a state of wandering that is brought about by being poor, right? I mean, it is used colloquially to refer to the poor um, in Sufi literature. Um, and in Gurbani, we see the word gharib all mm-hmm. the time. Um, we ended up using the word wanderer because... Um, as we just discussed the repeated word in this puzzle is um, to not be able to reach to not be able to arrive as we'll see in this puzzle um there is um Nantala is trying to is kind of describing this inability to reach the beloved to arrive at the destination where the beloved is um so to convey this aspect of the word "gareeb," you know the the helpless poor ones, I think, is a is one of the versions we were playing with. That doesn't mm-hmm. quite convey, because in in the English, the word poor does not also convey the state of wandering and the state of being or, you know. Right. Um, and so we've tried, we try, you know, I think wander works in this context because there is um throughout this puzzle a sense of searching for something, wandering for something. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that that's how we settled on Hopeless mm. wanderers.
1: Right. And, and the second line to this uh, couplet is, as no one ever reaches the beloved slain. So now this couplet, honestly, you know, that one was quite challenging for me to understand. So I'm glad Fatima was there on the call and she was able to explain it to to us. So I'm taking the liberty really of, um, of sharing what she said, you know, from my memory, what she said. So she tried to explain this uh, to us, think about it. So we've left our door, meaning we've left our house and we are wandering and searching. But even if we were to get to the beloved's kucha, to the beloved's lane, there's no one there who will ask about us, like look after us or do anything, because actually no one ever reaches mm-hmm. the beloved slave or the land. So, you know, when I when I thought about that, um, it seems to be a pretty lonely journey. It seems to be, um, you know, you're walking and walking the imagery and, and you know that this walk is really by yourself. There's nobody with you. It's a solo journey. Mm-hmm. And even if you get there, like we want to get there, there's a celebration. You want to celebrate with somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that have arrived, but there's not even that. So for me, this was wow, the strength to walk towards the beloved must really come from within and with no expectations. Mm-hmm isn't that what love is mm-hmm. that you just love regardless of the expectation
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you know there was there was a lot of thought or, you know while i was preparing for this podcast i was thinking about that i said wow this is quite intense so what i you know what are you thinking about this Castle, when when second line comes up In relationship, I don't even know whether it's related to the first one. Um, You know, you're already in a state of wondering you. There is nothing much that you hold dear to you. Um, And and nobody even looks at you. Actually, everyone who thinks, mostly people, the world, when they look at these seekers, they pity them. Mm -hmm. That they've left their home or they are searching for something, they're on a quest. Who knows whether they'll ever get there? Mm -hmm. So, to me, that this particular share couplet really spoke about a loneliness and then also very crystal clear about what love is, or at least. So, it, it was a play over there, the loneliness. That there is a loneliness in love too, mm-hmm. you know, where you keep, where you love without that expectation. It is. I can attach to that. Mm-hmm. That loneliness, I definitely have felt it, and I've ever as much as love is very much there. It really is part of it is solo.
0: Mm-hmm
3: yeah i think this is all very interesting because i think right so it's no one looks after the state of helpless wanderers um it's not because um people don't care about the helpless wanderers or because the, the you know they're um deliberately neglecting the helpless wanderers but it's actually because no one ever is they're never going to reach the beloved's lane mm. it's impossible to get there they're on a journey as you're saying that um, in some ways seems is in some ways fated to not be a success be successful, right There is no mm-hmm. arrival. No one ever reaches the beloved's lane. Um, so where does the desire to be on the journey to the beloved's lane come from? what? What prompts one to be a helpless wanderer if it's that no one is going to look after the state of the helpless wanderer and that the journey is never going to be completed is, I guess, the question and, you know, the answer that you're giving us is love, um, which I would be inclined to agree with. Um, I think it's interesting at the grammatical level that it is plural, gariban, it is multiple wanderers. and it is that none of them will ever reach the beloved's lane, right? Like it, it's not, that, you know, if you're graced, you do reach the beloved's lane, but it's actually just that, you know, it's impossible. Um, so I think that it is quite interesting. I find this guzzle I will say in the very beginning, I find, I have found and continue to find this guzzle pretty confusing. I think there are several couplets where I'm like, every time I read it, I have a different interpretation or I have a new question, um, which hopefully isn't frustrating for our listeners. But, you know, in the, in the spirit of transparency, um, I'll say that. Um, but yeah, it's in. The other question that was coming to mind right now is kind of who is the no one that doesn't look after the state of the helpless wanderer, right? Who who is that? Who is who is the opposite of the Garib? Who would look after the helpless wanderer? Mm. Um, and there's a, I think the ne- right. The next couplet is um, refers to the monarchs, and you know, is the monarch the one who would potentially look after the state of the helpless wanderer? Um, these are kind of questions that I'm. I have no idea how to answer.
1: Well, Daman, I'm going to say it right out now. The second couplet, I have no clue. <laughs> Honestly, I have read it and reread it, and I'm like, okay. I went back and listened and talked and talked some more, and I, I don't think I truly understand it or get it so let's unpack that maybe together or you do that and then let's see where it goes but I want um, you know I want to take a little bit of time to read that so the second couplet is a thousand heavens are not worth half a grain of barley as where we are is far beyond the reach of monarchs so you mentioned something about, you know, no one looks after. Who is the one who is supposed to look after or is meant to look after? Or mm-hmm. is there is there, a, you know, a subtle, subtle thing is being pointed to them? Because the next one, this one is monarch. You know, it's kind of like, okay, so is this related to the first one in some way? Help us.
3: Yeah, I also have no idea, but I can try um, to offer some sort of interpretation that, you know, might be completely off. Um, I'm confused and intrigued by the first line, a thousand heavens are not worth half a grain of barley. Is Is it suggesting that a thousand heavens are worth even less than half a grain of barley, which isn't? you know, barley is not valuable as, right. you know, it's not a jewel, it's not, you know, we've seen the ruby eye, you know, we've seen other images that make a lot of sense to me um, from law, but here I'm confused, you know, so is it that a thousand heavens are worth even less than half a grain of barley? I would ask the question, to whom? Is it that to the monarch who's after wealth, a thousand heavens are, which is, presumably incredibly valuable, incredibly difficult to attain the experience of a thousand heavens is for the monarch worthless because it's entirely about accumulating wealth. That would be one, that would be, that's kind of the interpretation I have right now. Um, if, if I, as the only way I can kind of make sense of this couplet, um, so we have the a thousand heavens that are worth very little half a grain of barley not even half a grain of barley as where we are so i would want to unpack the first part of this line a little bit because we did have a bit of a back and forth with the broader team um so the first part of this second line of this couplet is resi and that is a version of the same verb that we see repeated throughout this puzzle resida to arrive um, the tense here is the is the past perfect which i would translate most literally as we have arrived so i would maybe translate this if we if we wanted to get more literal i would maybe say as we have arrived somewhere that is far beyond the reach of monarchs, we we settled on as where we are, which is a little bit different. Um, it's not quite literal. Um, as we know, sometimes being less literal is actually you know better for understanding and also for meaning. So, as where we've arrived is far beyond the reach of monarchs. Now, if we do it like this, we have a suggestion of having traveled somewhere and arrived at a destination. Hmm. Something has culminated. We've reached perhaps where there are a thousand heavens, and this is entirely beyond the reach of monarchs. And that is why a thousand heavens are not even worth half a grain of barley to the monarch. It's because it's entirely out of even the realm of possibility for the monarch mm-hmm. to arrive there that's kind of how i'm interpreting it and that helps me kind of understand this is maybe a stretch and if it is you know tell me um but that kind of helps me understand you know no the first couplet no one ever looks after the state of the helpless wanderers is no one ever reaches the beloved lands you know who's the no one is it the monarch is it and you know sub whatever you want in present day um in a time when we ostensibly don't have monarchs, but what is valued by whatever mainstream that you occupy? Um.
1: Yeah, I, I I think so. It's like, uh, and that to me was that when I said no one looks after the state, it was really the mainstream. Right. It is whatever is your mainstream right now because they don't they don't get it. And they're not meant to get it because it's going against the norm. And so therefore, the the journey for that wanderer is really quite lonely. Right. You know, because he or she is walking. uh, There's no one to, I don't want to use the word cheer you on, but even a little bit of compassion or understanding and but also you know you will never get going to get there. I mean, with the wanderer, I mean it's a stretch. The idea that a seeker has, I mean, if it is, is maybe get a glimpse right. of something, and that's enough to you know to keep walking. Right. But it's those glimpses that you really um long for and that's where you get your strength from but to arrive at that you know I truly truly get it that no one ever reaches that I get that I mean that's crystal clear to me mm-hmm. that would be such a stretch and I don't expect anyone there you know <laughs> yeah and if I can't if I may <laughs>
3: um well I think so right right so it's out of the mainstream. It's out of the norm, you know, um, you know throughout time, um, um throughout time, those who kind of are out of the norm are abandoned by society. That's in some ways something that continues, certainly continues to happen. But I'm kind of curious because if, Garibba, if we wanted to translate the word garrib most literally, which suggests wandering would suggest one who's searching for the beloved. But also suggest one that does not have possessions, mm-hmm. does not possess money, does not have material possessions, but also like doesn't possess a job, right? Like is not um, you know, working the nine to five or whatever. Right. And you know, I am doing a little bit, obviously, the gareeb in non context is not the gareeb as we understand them today. Um, but it is kind of this thing, you know, this um this question of what happens to those who are not um, productive members of society. Uh, there is, you know, so there's a way in which I want to read this in a, in a way that I understand is not, <laughs> maybe not for this podcast, um, but there is a question here because we have this language of um, what is it that holds value? You know, a half a grain of barley has a particular material value in the mm-hmm. law's context continues to have some sort of material value in today's context. Maybe we wouldn't say half a grain of barley, but, you know, you know, we don't, don't live in a cash crops economy or whatever, but we have, you know, there's an equivalent, I don't know, Bitcoin. I don't know, you know, whatever we would say. Um, but I'm kind of interested in this um, language of the poor and the language of value. Yeah. Mm.
1: So we move to the third couplet. The one who is called the physician of love is known to have said that no one but God can heal the pain of these wanderers. You know, Daman, I remember that this was a really interesting conversation that the four of us had on this particular couplet. Because if we wrote the word was doctor of love, it was like, like love was a sickness. That needed to be cured and therefore we needed to go to the doctor. Um, Though there is a school of thought that uh, believes that love is a sickness and Fatima enlightened us on that and she even told us well yes love is a sickness in that school of thought and there are remedies also written to cure this sickness are also prescribed. I thought all of us got quite a bit of a chuckle out of that one Uh, but kidding aside you know um, we often read and hear that the seeker's pain, their longing, and their willingness to go through everything and anything is so intense mm-hmm. that only God, or which I would say, uh, grace, mm-hmm. can heal that pain. That, and you know, in even in that pain. It is when that pain turns into a sweet longing, when that longing, when that pain becomes a sweet pain. Um, I mean, this is really quite an exquisite um, couplet, and probably the one which I am. I know there's a cup. There's another two which I'm quite close to, but this one is also dear to my heart. Yeah. So, what what are your thoughts about this one?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think I would, um, I would agree with everything that you've said. And I, um, I realize now that we should ask Fatima to email us this excerpt where they prescribe the remedies for the sickness of love. Yes. I think that would be fun to read. Um, but maybe I would point out two things to start at the level of translation choices. Um, One that you've alluded to, the um, physician of love. The Bibi'ish is the original, um, quite literally, the doctor of love. And for all the reasons you've described, we went with the word physician, which, you know, arguably is not the right word. We, I think, thought about healer at one point. Um, But I think in addition to that, it's kind of interesting that it's the one who is called the physician of love, which is our interpretation of the doctor of love to um, kind of emphasize um, the distance that that phrase has to our present day. But it's the one who is called the physician of love, the doctor of love, is known to have said, I just love this because Mm -hmm. it really is is like you're, um, um, you know, you're hearing it in whispers. This is something that Everyone kind of knows, but it's kind of received wisdom more than anything else. So I, I love. I think that's just such an evocative um, first line for this couplet. Um, and then the second thing I would note is we've notably used the word God here, which is rare in our translations of Nandalal. The original here is Khuda. Um, so we've translated Khuda as God, um, as we've seen already in this puzzle, um, We've referred to the divine as the beloved, and the word um, in the first couplet that's used is Dilruba, which we've seen in other ghazals. Um, But here we have Khuda, and I think um, that's notable because that's not often the way in which Nandlal will refer to the divine.
1: Mm. Yep, great. You know that was great pointing that out. So we come to now the fourth couplet. If you want to light up the heart's eye, the finest coal is no match to the dust of his threshold. Wow, Daman, light up the heart's eye? I just love that phrase. So, to me, what this um, couplet is saying is that if you really want to see the radiance in the universe, then what you need is the dust of your beloved's doorway or you know whoever you consider the divine or I would like to say the beloved Mm -hmm. but here you know it's the you don't even need to enter it you just need to get there Mm -hmm. because it's on the threshold Mm -hmm. so even the recognition but you know there is a larger point here which I wanted to share with you that is even the recognition that I want to light my heart's eye is huge Mm -hmm. because that's not normal parlance you know what we say I mean very few of us will even think of saying that I want the eye of my heart to light up so I know these are metaphors Daman but these metaphors take us to a place make us vast make us think beyond our small selves and what does it even mean to want to light up your heart's eye?
3: Yeah, I think maybe two things come to mind here, maybe. Um, the first is, I think, right, like you're saying, in some ways, this couplet feels like an answer to the question we were trying to ask earlier, which is, what's the point? If no one looks after the state of the helpless wanderers, no one even reaches the beloved's lane, what's the point? Um, well, maybe the point is that no one but God can heal the pain of these wanderers. Right, in some mm-hmm. ways, maybe these two couplets is kind of answering that question. And the point is that the dust, dust of His threshold, is just um, going to light one's eye, heart's eye up. It's going to bring beauty into one's life. Right. It's some. In some ways, it seems like you know we have the healing or the alleviation of pain and the introduction of beauty as two reasons, two answers almost to that question of what is the point of seeking this impossible destination. Um, the second thing I would ask is, you know, is it metaphor? I don't know if it's metaphorical at all. No, it, it, You know, if you want, I, what I mean, if you want to light up the heart's eye, mm-hmm. if you want to bring... Because we've seen this in the guzzles of the past months where there is this constant, and this is also, you know, one of the things we see repeatedly in Gurbani, which is there's this constant desire, this constant um, longing and need to... um, there is this there's this way in which I'm thinking of the line in a previous puzzle where it's like if you don't want to go to the school, go to the wine house instead.
0: Right. Mm, right.
3: Um, there's this constant like, okay, move from your mind to your heart. It doesn't matter um what the pious, righteous, pious ones say, right. Um I'm forgetting, I'm going to butcher all of Nandala's lines, but, you know, (laughs) know, it's like... (laughs) he's
1: going to come in your dreams, and he is going to give you a scolding, Right,
3: he's going to put out the light in my heart's eye, but the joke's really on him. (laughs) But but so I would say, you know, I think it's this kind of question, you know, it is a metaphor insofar as, you know, you're bringing light into your heart's eye, but... um, I think he's he's quite literal here in some ways, right? This move from the mind to the heart, which we see throughout the puzzles. Um, and then the last thing I think um, I find fascinating throughout this puzzle is here. We, again, we have kind of this val this value comparison. The finest coal, which is um, you know going to make you beautiful, you know, physically beautiful, is mm-hmm. you know perhaps even going to ward evil eye away from you. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's it's no match, and you know the w- word here um, is narisad. You know the coal does not even reach the value of the dust of his threshold, which, as you're pointing out, it's not even entering anything. Simply the threshold.
1: Yeah, you know that. And that surma, which is that coal, is the finest. Surma. It's quite expensive, right. and you just need a little bit. But it is, and this is the finest of that. Right. So even that, you know, so that comparison yeah. is very much there, what you were talking, which was that half a grain of barley right. and the thousand heavens was happening there too. Right. And right. here too, some sort of a comparison is happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we move to the fifth um couplet. It's worth spending one's life remembering the beloved. As there is no alchemy equivalent to that. Now, this is my understanding of this couplet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to break it down. Like there is nothing greater than remembering the beloved. It is worth spending your entire life in this remembrance. And that there is uh, no process other than remembrance that can take something or someone which who is very ordinary and make that person or individual become extraordinary, accept your remembrance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in Bani, in Gurbani also say, is that remembrance is what's going to take you across. It is, you know, sing the praises, remember the divine. And here too, it is that your entire life, it is worth spending your entire life in that remembrance of your love. I know um, there's a lot more in this couplet, Daman. I mean, there's a comparison again being made, as there were comparisons made in the previous couplets. So walk us through this, please.
3: Yeah. Um, maybe the first thing to note is that the word being used for beloved here is dos or dust. Um, We might translate as friend, Um, we've translated here as beloved, which I think um, is more accurate in this context. Um, But that's worth noting because this is now the third way in which we've seen the beloved referred Mm -hmm. to in this chazal. We started with Dil-Rabah, which we also translated as beloved, but literally um, suggests one who steals one's heart away. We saw Khoda, which we translated as God, and now we see Dost, which we translate as Beloved. Um, So that's just something that I would note. Um, I think it is interesting, like you're pointing out, that we keep seeing kind of um, the metaphors he's reaching to here are metaphors of comparison. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to say that again. Um the images he's reaching for in this puzzle seem to be kind of these images of comparison: the coal and the dust, the thousand heavens and the barley, and now al- alchemy, which of course suggests transformation, which suggests mag- something magical is happening, um perhaps even like fictitious and impossible, right? Um, in the kind of popular understanding of alchemy. Um and remembrance itself becomes some sort of alchemy. Remembrance itself in some ways also kind of seems to be the journey, mm-hmm. um, I think, are the two things I would note in this puzzle.
1: Yeah, it is, you know, the lovers always say, if I die in your remembrance, life just couldn't get any better than that. There's nothing sweeter than that. So that remembrance plays a huge role in that 30 yard. You know, in that yard, I am living, I am dying, I am existing. That's all I have. So there is something very strong about that remembrance. So um, we move to the sixth uh, couplet. All the world's wealth can be given up for the dust of his door. As unless one surrenders to him, no one reaches anywhere. Now here again, we have the dust, the priceless dust of his door, the dust that lights up the heart's eye, enabling one to really, truly see. Um, but I know we also have words um, like given up and surrender. I'd love to know the depth of those words in Farsi and you know how to, how does how do they play in in that literature? Because yeah. surrender has a very different connotation when you when you translate it in the English language and given up is also a sense of defeat, but this isn't that.
3: Yeah, so I think the one word that comes up in both lines of this couplet that I think is, um, right, as you're saying, we've translated as surrendered or given up and i would say neither of, neither of those probably capture the depth of the meaning in persian as you're saying but the word is fida um, which has a few different meanings the literal version of fida is to either sacrifice oneself to completely surrender oneself to completely give oneself up to completely devote oneself um there's also a connotation of the word fida as ransom,
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, and one who engages in fida, um, so someone who kind of risks their lives is referred to as you know engaging in the action of fida, including like offering yourself as ransom for a cause. So there's quite so all of this to say. There's like quite a few different meanings of the word fida. Um, I think in this couplet, um, we're seeing both of these meanings deployed in an interesting way. So in the first, we might want to think about ransom, right? All of the world's wealth can be given up as ransom, right, for the dust of its door. So I think this is an interesting aspect of the word, this kind of monetary aspect or this kind of aspect of exchanging something for something else um exchanging something by forth right all the connotations of ransom kind of in a kidnapping or whatever in the case of a robbery or whatever um so I think that's kind of an interesting aspect of this I am kind of curious about what would ha- So all the world's wealth, he's saying, can be given up, can be held to ransom for the de- dust of his door once again, not entering, but simply the dust of the threshold, the dust of the door. Um, I would kind of want to think about like what would it actually look like to give up? You know, of course, Nandalal in the 17th century is writing in a very different context from the context in which we're living today, but we're also living in a context. The world has never had as much wealth as it currently has, and the world has never had as much wealth concentrated in the hands of as few people as it currently has. So what would it actually look like for all of the world's wealth to be given up to look after the state of helpless wanderers? You know, like I'm being a literalist on purpose in a kind of annoying way. (laughs) But I recognize that but I am kind of curious like what would actually happen if all the world's wealth was given up for the dust of Israel Well, what would that world look like Hmm. um is kind of something I'm curious about but as unless one surrenders to him and here we would have the connotation of fida which is more common which is surrender to give up as unless one surrenders to him khuda the divine the beloved no one reaches anywhere um if I can be, like, literal for one more second, I'm kind of interested in... um, It's not simply now that no one reaches... You don't reach the Beloved's lane, but it's actually that you don't reach anywhere at all. You know, you reach no place. I have no idea what that means, but I'm, like, really interested in this.
1: Well, you reach no place because you really are... There's no home. Home is actually when you have surrendered and you are go- you've are you gone within and you know you have arrived within. So, unless that doesn't happen, you will always be wandering. Mm-hmm. That sense of when there is something you have connected with within yourself or something there, the anchor where you have found that, and that only comes through surrendering, that it's not outside, it's within. And uh, and that realization is when surrender takes place. Mm-hmm. You know, after surrender takes place, you realize that there is actually no place to go but to look within. Mm-hmm. And until that surrender has, hasn't happened, no one reaches anywhere. You just keep going round and round in circles. You're spinning. You literally are spinning from point a to point B and looking and you, you, you're not you're not settled you're in this turmoil you're in this confusion you're in this state of uh, you know the desires up and down pulling you everything pulling you so that's that you reach nowhere mm-hmm. I mean that's the way you know I interpret it because to me this was that part was a lot clearer. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, we are on this journey, we are on, we are walking, we are the helpless wanderers, we are the, you know, and then then in that the previous one, you know, the entire life is is worth spending your entire life in his in the remembrance of the beloved. And there's nothing that can equal that. And that's when transformation takes place. You get changed. And, uh, you know, I can give up the world's wealth. If I, now that I've experienced a little bit of it, the world's wealth means really nothing to me for that dust. And then it's actually when you know uh, within that freedom that you get, and, and that's freedom to fly, when you're no longer bound by certain, by even your desires or anything that holds you. Because you, in some way, are complete,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and until you are not complete, you're not you're, you're just, you know you're just spinning. That sense of being, you don't need anybody else to complete you. You're complete within yourself. Mm-hmm. There's there's a great sense of. Um, of freedom in that—that that you're not dependent on anything, or anyone, or any thought. Nothing is holding you. Um, whether it's raining or, or 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 the sun is shining, whether you have, you know, four meals or two meals or one meal or you know what you wear, nothing. It's just—it just goes. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Maybe this was a little bit much, much more than we wanted to talk about that the sixth, the couplet, but the, no, st- the I- story about us always, you know, we go off on a tangent on on one thing, and, you know, <laughs> it goes from here to there. So let's come to the last one, <laughs> which is really the culmination. I feel uh, Goya surrenders to the dust of his door, as the destination cannot be reached unless one turns into dust. Here, you know, his humility in surrendering to that dust of his door. But this is not surrendering to him, you know, to his beloved. This is surrendering to the dust of his door. So which speaks to me of that utter humility, the negation of all one's desires. But then this is not being worthless. We always think, oh, when you surrender, you become worthless. You let people walk all over you. But this isn't that. This is giving up everything is because there's a deep knowing within you that in giving up or in surrendering, one is receiving something far greater, which is unimaginable. And Goya knows that, that there is something there And he yearns for that and he wants to experience that. And that's why he's, you know, that's one of the reasons why the surrender is a sweet surrender. You know, in Gurbani, we have this charantul, the dust of the and good speed, which means we yearn for the company of the truth seekers. So we too may be uplifted. Mm -hmm. So here he is surrendering to that dust of his door and knowing fully well the only way To really um, surrender to the dust is actually to become dust.
2: Yeah, so
3: I think this couplet, right, so this couplet is very, very, very interesting to me because we have two things that are different in this couplet from previous ones in this vessel. We have um, Goya himself surrendering to the dust of the door. the literal translation would suggest, so we have the word fiddah for surrender again, which we've seen in the previous couplet, but it's mishavat, which suggests, the verb is mishavat, which suggests that one is becoming. So Goya surrenders to the dust of his door is how we've translated it. If we wanted to get really literal, we might say something like, Goya is becoming, um, how might we say this? You know. Goya is becoming sacrificed to or Goya is become, you know, we would maybe, and I don't think English really allows for this, but there is a sense of like this is become this is a state of becoming, not a state of being. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting, especially in light of how you were kind of understanding the Vaselini. It's kind of there is this kind of com- com- it's a culmination, it's a becoming something is right. um, kind of happening in this couplet that hasn't quite happened in the previous couplets yet. Um, of course, part of this comes from the guzzle form, which necessitates that Goya has his pen name in the last couplet also. Um, but there is a sense of kind of culmination of it, of something becoming sacrificed to something. We repeatedly have kind of seen this in the guzzle where it's um, what is the destination? It's the beloved's lane. It's the beloved's threshold. It's the beloved's door. You know, there is this kind of—it's um, the completion of the journey seems to just like lead to another journey that we can't quite glimpse, except mm-hmm. at the level of the door. Um, and yeah, I think it's—it's it's a really power—it's a really powerful couplet um
1: in the first one it says no one ever reaches the uh, the beloved slain and here and the last one again it is as the destination cannot be reached but unless one turns into dust so there is that hope right? yeah How to, so that to me was really interesting
3: yeah i think that's really um that's really important to point out um, because right we have you know going through the gospel again we started with no one ever reaches the beloved's lane at some point we got to you know if you unless one surrenders to him no one reaches anywhere at all
0: mm-hmm. um,
3: and here we have something a little bit different which is that if one can surrender and turn into dust, you know perhaps the destination can, after all, be reached.
2: Mm. Yeah. So I,
1: I found a little bit of hope mm-hmm. in in the in the last uh, couplet. There's a possibility, and that is when you become the dust, mm-hmm. because dust mingles with dust. Am I ready? Are we ready to be that? Mm-hmm. Because dust is nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. There's right. no desire, there's nothing, there's just,
3: yeah. Right, dust is nothing, but it's also, um, you know, worth more than the finest coal and all right. wealth, right, right? Right,
1: right, right, right. So, you know, it's, this one was very thought-provoking. This wasn't one of those, aha, I love this thing. This one was, this Highland made us work on this
3: one. Yeah, it's quite different. If if listeners listened to um, the previous guzzle guzzle twenty five, which I think um, you know is very um, I won't say any of his guzzles are particularly intuitive or easy, um, but you know it was that guzzle especially. Kind of I think we've even said this in the podcast. It kind of felt like um, a very intimate kind of love note, love letter, right? um, where there's a lot of kind of very beautiful images. Um, there's a lot of, um, kind of description of the physical beauty of the beloved and this, we don't get any of that here. So I think it's, um, it's always, it's always, um, it's always powerful for me to remember kind of the, just the variety of the different kinds of ways in which he's thinking about and experiencing the beloved.
1: Yeah. But, you know, Daman, this was a good choice that, you know, you chose these 12 guzzles. So the idea was to give our listeners a, a, a broad range of experience. So not every guzzle is going to be the same, to give them you know the different facets of his writing so i think in this one it it's quite clear that this is very different from his previous ones and i wanted to point that out that it was done intentionally mm-hmm. with that in mind so that you know the listeners have that experience as well mm-hmm. so any parting thoughts daman
3: none for me um this is a little that just to reiterate, I, you know, it does feel like, you know, if I were to revisit it in a couple of weeks, I might interpret it in an entirely different way. Um, so we've probably said this in every podcast we've done so far, but it is one you know, it is one of those things that's really true where it's, um, and I think especially, you know, the, the conversation we had today, it, yeah. It is quite difficult sometimes to even, you know, figure out how to get started with an interpretation,
1: right? You know, I always, when I translate for myself, and this is just purely meant for myself, I don't put that out. I begin with like, "I am Goya, and I'm doing this." Like, I, you know, all the world's wealth can be given up for the dust of his door. I would translate this. I can give up the entire world's wealth for the dust of his feet. As unless I don't surrender to him, I will reach nowhere because that to me makes it very intimate. I get it instead of, and and that's what I do with everything and then I do whatever I need to do. But the first round is always, it's like, it's you and I you know, this is a conversation, I need to understand, I need to get in. Like, what are you thinking? How are you phrasing it? And then I look at the grammar and everything else. But for the first round, it really is just an outpouring. Tell me, I asked, you know, the author, tell me, what are you saying? Is this what I'm hearing? Because this is what I'm hearing. So I always keep the first part, because I go back to the first part. That's, to me is probably uh, far has greater depth than every other translation because then in the translations, I become a little rigid. I become, what will the world say? Will they understand? But the one which I do for myself, it just flows and it's just, and you know, to tell you the truth, I really don't care whether it's right or wrong. It's me. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that's an important thing because, um, for example, right the the way in which um, there are kind of several interpretations at play of the first couplet with the state of the helpless wanderers, and it, I do think that all of the interpretations are kind of valid, um, and yeah, I think that. One of the lessons that I definitely learned, especially working with Fatima, who has both the most knowledge in Persian and specifically Persian literature of the four of us who worked on this project is, you know, she would often see our first draft of the of the translation and she would say, you know, this is much too literal. And she would, um, I think, emphasize for me the need to remember first and foremost that we need to think about... Um, Language may be slightly different when it comes to a guzzle, when it comes to a poem, than we would if we were like translating an essay of some sort, where it really is about flow and it really is about meaning. And there are like certainly multiple interpretations that are possible and all valid. Um so I think um this is both a reminder to myself that like if I revisit this, you know, certainly I'll like have another interpretation of something, but also to the listeners, right, who are coming to these guzzles um, and kind of hopefully lingering with these guzzles and kind of coming up with their own interpretations and trying to understand um, all of the different meanings that we might get from any given guzzle.
1: Yeah, true. I mean, there's so much to uh, learn, share, enjoy. Uh, mind-stretching, everything happen, is happening with these guzzles, and, you know, I know I speak for myself, but I think I can speak for you on this one, too. Both of us are loving every moment of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's nothing like glutton for punishment, right? And here we are, true to form, you know, uh, yeah, I don't even know what time it is in the evening, and here we are uh, absolutely glowing uh, with, you Talking about Painand Lal as, as if he as if he is our best friend and we know him intimately. <laughs> so, but that's what the guzzles do, uh, and I think that's what they are doing to both of us. I I know I can safely speak for you on this one, Devon.
3: Yeah, um, and as always, I look forward to. We both look forward to feedback and comments and reactions from. Uh, people who are listening
1: in. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, uh, Guru Fateh and Daman, good night. <laughs> good night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to Sick Cast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.